Okay, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I love the Lord because he heard my voice. <laughs> so, here we are. Shabbat Shalom. This is week nine in the study of Hebrews. We're in chapter 3 and verse 7, but I'm going to begin reading today from verse 5. It says, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Messiah is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to the courage and the hope of which we boast. And so the author, realizing like no other uh, person in the history of the people of Israel, Moses is the man, amen? Who in the mind, he is the man in the mind of the Jewish people who is the founder of the faith, the greatest leader in all the history of Israel. So trusted by God was Moses that he not only mediated the Torah, he gave the Torah to the people of Israel. The respect is so great that the rabbis use Moses to justify their own traditions, their oral Torah, stating that they too came from Moses but just were never written down. The fact is, Deuteronomy ends with these words. 34 verse 10 says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do, to Pharaoh and all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. You see, the Holy Spirit tells us that there was no one greater in the history of Israel, but the author has made the point that while Moses was a great leader and prophet and giver of the Torah, Moses is not as great as Yeshua. And he does this by making a simple point. Stating that while Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, the key word being servant, Yeshua is faithful as a son over God's house. Amen? Yeshua is also the founder and the builder of the house. We spoke of that last week. You don't get to be part of the house except through the master. So now that the readers understand that Yeshua is greater than Moses, he is going to recount what happened to those who did not believe Moses. In kind of a, kind of a strung out kind of Colva Homer type argument, he's going to say, if this is what happened to Israel when they rebelled against Moses, see to it none of you is found to fall away. Right? And to do this, the author is going to give the readers a warning about unbelief. And he does this by quoting Psalm 95. The psalm 
uh, this psalm is a Sabbath psalm. It's read at Kabbalat Shabbat, or in Hebrew or in English, the welcoming of the Sabbath. It's, it's part of the temple service liturgy. It's found its way into the Christian liturgical service as well. So let's read verses 7 through 11 as he quotes Psalm 95. He says, So the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. During the time of testing in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me for 40 years, saw what I did, and this is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. And they, do, they have not known my ways. So I declare on my oath in my anger... They shall not enter my rest. So I, I think the first thing we should look at here is the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 45. But before he quotes the psalm, he says, the Holy Spirit says. Now, the author of the Psalm 95 is David. And yet, the author of Hebrews says, the Holy Spirit says. Well, that tells us, this tells us that the word of God is exactly that. Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. The other thing, he doesn't say the Holy Spirit inspired David. He says the Holy Spirit says. The writer of Hebrews certainly believed that this psalm was the actual Word of God. The writer quotes from the Septuagint. And the psalm begins today, if you hear his voice. And then it goes on to speak about the Israelites in the wilderness and how God was angry with them for 40 years. And why would he use the wilderness journey as an example? Well, for one, the exodus in the wilderness journey with all of its problems has always been seen as an example of our life and our walk with God. For the followers of Yeshua, the exodus in the promised land is the shadow of the redemption and the promise of the kingdom that's coming to the earth. Paul tells us they were, these things were written down for us as an example. The exodus, for example, God redeems Israel by the blood of a lamb. And we've been redeemed by the life of the lamb of God given for our redemption. The Pharaoh, who is Israel's evil taskmaster, is a shadow of the evil taskmaster of this present evil age. The adversary of God is called Pharaoh by the prophets. The prophet Ezekiel, in a discourse about the end of the age, and the of the adversary of God, who's also called Le Leviathan, which is a huge sea monster, says this in Ezekiel 29, verse 3. He says, I am against you. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, you great monster lying among your streams. You say the Nile is mine. I made it for myself. But I'll put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your stream stick to your scales. I'll pull you out from among the streams with all the fish sticking to your scales. And I'll leave you in the desert. And you and all the fish of your streams, you will fall in an open field and not be gathered or picked up. I will give you as food for the, birds of, of the, for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. That's what's going to happen to the adversary who they call Pharaoh and Leviathan. So Pharaoh, in this passage, is this great sea monster, Leviathan, and he's cast into the desert with all of his fish, or we could say all of his followers, 
and they're given as food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. So the Holy Spirit tells us that Pharaoh is a term for Hasatan, the great Satan. Israel's rising up out of the Reed Sea and leaving Egypt behind is a shadow of our immersion and our leaving our former lives behind and then going on to a life with God. We've all studied the Passover. We should all know these things by now. However, the author of Hebrews tells us that something else is equally as important and that's the journey through the wilderness and their rebellion. That's equally as important. And we could stand here and I could read Exodus through Deuteronomy for you and we could find out why God was angry. But Psalm 106 speeds up, gives us the short version. And so we'll read that instead. Psalm 106 verse 14 says, In the desert they gave into their craving. In the wasteland they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for, but sent wasting disease upon them. He gave them what they were craving, and the word actually means lust. He gave them what they wanted, what they lusted after, and along with a disease. And I'll tell you something about lust. Most lust will eventually lead to a disease of some kind. Think about it. And next he says, in the camp... They grew envious of Moses and Aaron, who was consecrated to the Lord. And the earth opened and swallowed Dathan, and it buried the company of Abiram. Abiram. Fire blazed among the followers. A flame consumed the wicked. They grew envious, or we could say covetous, of Moses' position. Though God himself had told them, thou shalt not covet. Now here's the big one. And I believe it's really the one that started the whole mess. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull. Miracles in the land of Ham and the awesome deeds done by the Reed Sea. And so he said he he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen, stood in the breach before him, to keep his wrath from destroying them. We're going to speak more about this this moment as this will be the main focus of today's lesson. But next we're going to get the final straw. After God had done all these things, bringing them up out of Egypt, speaking to them from a mountain, giving them miraculous food, water, providing for them, here's what he gets in return. They despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents. You see, the final straw was they had no faith. They listened to ten men who had no faith instead of two men of faith in the promise of God. And for their lack of faith, they died in the desert. Some of the other things, you know, the Israelites ignore the Sabbath and go out and try and gather manna on the Sabbath day. They grumble against God and Moses for water, for food. They speak against the leaders of the nation, rebel against Moses and Aaron. Paul tells us this is all a shadow of what we're going to encounter, right? You don't believe that? Well, who of us cannot relate to grumbling and complaining about your circumstances in life? Which of us 
has not violated the Sabbath day or at least been tempted to violate the Sabbath day? And which of us do not suffer from a lack of faith in the promises of God? But there is another aspect of this wilderness journey that is a direct shadow for our lives. And the one I said I wanted to focus on, the one at Mount Sinai. You see, after the Israelites are redeemed from Egypt, after they've been given the Sabbath, just 50 days after their redemption, they hear the voice of God. The fact is, the whole premise for them being a holy nation and a kingdom of priests is based on their hearing the voice of God. That's what Exodus chapter 19 says. In verse 5 it says, Therefore, if you will hear my voice, indeed keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, God says if. It's a key word here. If you will hear my voice. And besides the actual physical hearing the voice, the Hebrew word there is Shema. And it means to hear with obedience. But it means to hear. That's why some translations you'll see will put hear. Some translations will put obey. I put the word up here for you because it means to listen, to hear, to listen, and obey. So while it can mean obey... The actual meaning, it actually here means to hear and obey. You see, when translating, you have to look at the context to determine exactly what the word is going to mean. Does it mean hear, does it mean obey, or does it mean both? And certainly within the context of this story, as we're going to see in a moment, within the context of the passage of Hebrews as well, the writer clearly means hear. And of course, hear in obedience. So here he says, if you hear my voice and keep my covenant, then, keyword then, and keyword if, if you hear my voice, then you'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, they said yes. All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then they hear, the vo- and then they hear his voice. He comes down on the mountain. He speaks to them. After, after hearing their voice, they go astray. And they asked this in in verse 18 of chapter 20. They trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But don't have God speak to us or we'll die. Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen. And if we look at the Hebrew, therefore we will listen. Again, it's our word Shema. It's actually the word Enishema. So the Israelites say Moses... You speak to us and we'll listen and obey. So they asked for a change from hearing from God and they agreed to hearing from Moses and obeying. Of course, Moses pleads with them to change their minds, but their hearts were hard. Their hearts were hardened. And so God doesn't speak to them again. He speaks to Moses. But then the very next command Moses gives them is to not make idols of silver and gold. And what do they do? When he goes up to the mountain to speak with God, they make and worship a golden calf. So they didn't listen to the voice of God, but they asked for Moses instead. They'd they'd listen to him, but they don't listen to Moses. They don't obey Moses as they themselves said they would. 
And as I said earlier, if you read the rest of the account of the wilderness journey, you're going to know that this is just the beginning of their disobedience. But the final straw for God was when they failed to trust him to enter into the land. That was the final straw, which I might add, by Jewish tradition, this entering the land is equated with, you shall not enter my rest. See, the Hebrew word for rest is some, in Psalm 95 is menucha, resting place, rest. So many of the rabbis maintained that this, what, what this meant was they shall never enter my menucha or my rest, they shall not enter my land. Other rabbis like Akiva thought menucha meant uh, the world to come. They'll never go, they're not going to enter the world to come. Another said just the weekly Sabbath. Either way, the point is, God was so angry with their lack of trust and their unbelief in His promise and their disobedience that they died in the desert. And that's just not a story. We all need to heed this because, as we've been shown, it's just a pattern. It was given for us as an example. We all fail to fully believe the promises of God. And just thank God that you have a Messiah interceding on your behalf when you do. Amen? So the author says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Now again, look at the context here. Does the author mean obey his voice? No, he, he means today, if you hear his voice. See, the context is clear. The meaning is clear. It means hear and obey. So again, it's the same as with the Mount Sinai context. The context is hearing. If you read the book of Acts, you're going to find that these early believers, they heard the voice of God. The same thing's available to us today. We can hear. The problem is most don't take the time to pray, much less hear from God. And I think it's sad. Think about Israel. Had they not said no to the hearing the voice of God and they would have been strengthened and encouraged by his voice on a daily basis, they would not have failed to enter the land. They would have gone in. Doubt that? Because we can see it if we look at the one who brought back the good report. Joshua. Who will take them into the land 40 years later. What separated Joshua from the rest of the Israelites. Well, we're told in chapter 30, or 33 of Exodus. Verse 10 says, Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance uh, to his tent. But the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. You see, Joshua was a man of prayer who knew God, who also went into the tent of meeting with Moses. And Joshua did not grumble. He was not among the rebellious who the earth swallowed up. He did not envy Moses, as did Moses' own brother and sister. Why not? Because he was busy in the house of God seeking God. He had a confidence that comes from seeking God and hearing from God. Is it any wonder that he was the one that was chosen to lead the Israelites? 
Caleb too. Listen to what's said of Caleb in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 35. Not a man of this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give to your forefathers except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. He followed the Lord wholeheartedly. So the writer evidently sees that these Messianic Jews are in danger of losing faith, as did all of those in the wilderness, with the exception of Joshua, Caleb, and Moses. And so he says to them, by quoting the Holy Spirit, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. What does he mean today? Well, in this case, he's saying today is as relevant as then. As it was for the Israelites in those of David's day, today. Today has really no set time limit in history. Today is today. Tomorrow is going to be today. Today. Right? It means that everything that was relevant for them, everything that tripped them up in that day, is the same thing tempting you today. So today, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, as those at Sinai, keep his covenant. Then you'll be a holy people. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. He says, they stumbled because they disobeyed the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, Peter's letter, like the letter to the Hebrews, is a letter to Jewish believers. And we often read this as it was written to non-Jews, but the fact is it's being written to Jewish followers of Messiah. And yes, it's relevant for non-Jews as well, but it is actually addressed to those who are scattered. Listen to what verse 1 says. Peter, an apostle of Yeshua the Messiah, to God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. To these Jewish believers, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What makes them now a holy people? A priesthood. Well, he told us in verse 4 in chapter 1. He says, As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. You see, as these Jewish followers came to faith in the Messiah, they were being built into a spiritual house or a spiritual family. The family, the sons of God. It's through the Son of God that we all, Jew and non-Jews alike, become sons of God. We can once again hear the voice of the Master. Now I want you to think about Mount Sinai. When they refused to hear God's voice, he didn't condemn the nation. 
He didn't condemn the nation, did he? When they built the calf, the whole nation wasn't condemned. When they grumbled against Moses and God, the entire nation didn't die. But when they displayed this lack of trust, this complete lack of trust in the promises of God, when they refused to trust God to defeat the inhabitants of the land, when they refused to accept this great gift of God because they didn't believe God, that was the last straw. They were condemned to remain in the wilderness and they died there. All Israel would remain there until the last of the adults who had come up out of Egypt died. Not just that, but think about this. As they perished to a man, as they became old and died one by one, they had this to look at what happens when you trust God. They had this to look at. Joshua chapter 14 verse 10 says, Now, then, just as the Lord promised me, He has kept me alive for 45 years since the time He said this to Moses while Israel moved about the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, still as strong as the day Moses sent me out. I'm as vigorous to go into battle as now as I was then. As they grew old, as they grew faint of heart and weak of limb, finally breathing their last, they had to look at Joshua and Caleb, still full of faith, still strong of limb, ready to go in to the land, ready to go to the manucha of God, the rest of God, because they had faith. And there's nothing new under the sun. Because as he... The writer of Hebrews will later point out in chapter 11 about speaking of Enoch. He says, by faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not have to experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. Before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe him. Right? must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. No doubt about Enoch entering the Menucha, right? For he was one who pleased God. And how did he please God? He had faith. He trusted God. He believed God. And without faith, you cannot please God. So with this in mind, the author and the Holy Spirit say this. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You know, we all need to do a faith check, because the sin of lack of faith is probably the most deceitful sin. You know, this week, I hardly ever talk about current events, but I got to talk about this one. This week, we heard about a shooting in California. Well, one of those that was killed was a Messianic believer. And we look at that and say, oh, sad. His life was cut short. But faith looks at that and says, how can you cut eternity short? Right? 
How can you cut eternity short? What can man do to me? Faith says we have this hope. And more than hope, we have a surety that the Spirit of God who raised Yeshua from the dead is now living in us. And the God who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through His Spirit. Who lives in us, speaks to us. So what can man do to me? You know, his wife said, if her testimony is accurate, his wife said that he shared his faith with everyone and it may be that, that that's why he was targeted by this Muslim. But that won't stop a man of faith because faith, as Shaul did, says, I want to know Messiah and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I can attain to the resurrection of the dead. You see, as the writer will later point out, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what is yet unseen. So the question again for us today is, where are we on this faith-building journey? Because that's why we're here. We're on a faith-building journey. Are we looking at the world as those who died in the wilderness? Or are we looking at the promise of God? Because what can man do to me? Amen? Let's bring the worship team up.